from east to west and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to Episode 4 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and producer, Craig Williams. So Craig, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. We're hoping we're going to get rain. Oh, <laughs> so excited out here. It's always exciting when you hear about rain in California. <laughs> yeah, right now it is. That's for sure. I would welcome the rain here. Uh, it got a little chilly for a couple of days in a row and uh, then right back up with the heat again. Lovely now, Florida. When I was out there, it rained a lot. Yeah, no, it's uh, that... That trend changed quickly, <laughs> as it always does. And then for the past week now, it's been really beautiful days. But just we need that. We need more rain to come in and yeah. make it cold again. I like cold here. Uh, I'm, I'm a warm weather person, but I like where we live in California. We have the seasons. And so I like the change in seasons. And the interesting thing is, is that the... Um, the naturalists and forest rangers and all that up in Yosemite have said that the animals are already starting to go into hibernation. Oh, wow. So we think it means we're going to have a really um, strong and early winter, which we're hoping means snow and rain. But yeah, the marmots, the coyotes and all that in Yosemite have already gone into hibernation. Well, I mean... Here's hoping the best for you. I, yeah, really. The only problem with that is for here, whenever whenever the weather starts getting cold up north, that just means that we get all the lovely snowbirds down here, and then things get really interesting with driving and uh, just good old-fashioned fun down here. Oh, yeah. So we get the skiers who can't drive in the snow. Oh. <laughs> and see, our town is 20 minutes away, so we're like one of the last places before uh, before they hit the snow and so it's just it gets crazy going uh, up the hill as we call it oh yeah <laughs> oh no no whenever uh whenever i lived up north and we'd go skiing and stuff you could definitely tell who was not used to driving in snow and who was <laughs> yeah well you know and that is why walt built in central florida because he did not want to deal with the snow yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Another perfect segue into actually talking about what we're discussing today. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. So now in episode three, last time, the which was titled The Search Ends and the Mystery Unfolds, you know, Craig and I examine how Walt Disney selected Central Florida for the location of his Florida project. And we talked about the process the company went through to secretly purchase the land and how Walt was forced to prematurely announce the land purchase. In today's episode, The Master Plan, we're going to look at what Walt intended to build on his 27,443 acres in Central Florida. Now let's go back to that November 15, 1965 press conference with Walt and Roy Disney and Florida's Governor Hayden Burns. At the press conference, the governor asked Walt, Will it be Disneyland? 
Walt wasn't ready to tell anyone what he was planning. He did hint that the new place may be called Disney World, but he was hesitant to commit even to that. Whilst responding to questions, Walt avoided giving any details until one journalist asked, Is it possible that it will be what we think of as a city of tomorrow, something we expect to live in 30, 40, 50 years from now? A somewhat startled Walt started to dance around the question, but he eventually shared some of what was in his plans. I would like to be part of building a city of tomorrow, as you might say, facilities for the community, community entertainments. I'd love to be part of building up a school of tomorrow. And he added, I'm not against the automobile, but I just feel that the automobile has moved into communities too much. I feel that you can design so that the automobile is there, but still put people back as pedestrians, you see. I'd love to work on a project like that. Walt went on to say he might build two different communities. One would be called Yesterday and would be based on a nostalgic vision of America, um, maybe similar to Greenfield Village in Dearborn or Colonial Williamsburg. The other community might be called Tomorrow. But Walt was interrupted by another question, so he revealed nothing more about a city of tomorrow. Okay, so unless I have completely just stopped paying attention or missed something in all of this, none of these plans were ever out there before, were they? That this no. So this journalist, he must have either been tipped off or had a really good sixth sense on this. Walt had been hinting around in uh, in interviews and conversations that he had about his interest in building some sort of a city. So I th- the only thing I could think of is this journalist was starting just to put two and two together. The way, uh, you know, like Emily Bavar started to put together the yeah. fact that it was the Disney company that was um, buying up all the land. True, true, yeah. It's just, I mean, that's... He just hit the nail on the head. That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It it was it was impressive there. Good journalism. Exactly. <laughs> so now with the project no longer a secret, um, Disney began early development of the site. But actually, Disney had begun site development in October, a few weeks before the project announcement on November 15th. The Edwards Construction Company had already cleared several hundred acres of the property, and the engineering firm of G. and Jensen had begun working on site and drainage studies for the project. So shortly after the announcement, delegations of Florida officials began visiting Anaheim to see Disneyland. Disney's goal was to show government officials that Disneyland was of the highest quality, the type of well-planned project Floridians were sure to embrace. So Disney officials continued to visit the Florida property to discuss technical issues such as infrastructure and roads, two issues that would determine whether or not the project would continue to move forward. So as work progressed on the master plan for Disney World in 1966, Walt added more people to his original planning committee of himself, Joe Potter, and Marvin Davis. Um, regular meetings were held in the Disney World conference room, the largest at WED. And only three people had keys to this room, Marvin Davis, Joe Potter, and Walt. Hmm. Now, Davis's task was to incorporate 
all of Walt's various ideas into one cohesive plan to develop an overall site plan for the theme park, to design a man-made lagoon near Bay Lake and several housing and recreation and lodging facilities nearby. Now, Davis's assignment also included developing the land set aside for the Epcot complex. So this included developing a site plan, incorporating a town center for an estimated 30,000 residents, and the support structures such as warehouses and parking facilities for visitors. So basically, Marvin Davis was the chief planner for designing and implementing Walt's vision for Disney World. Um, 30,000 just... It's not a huge number, but it, it seems like so much just based off of looking at some of like the early models and blueprints for how everything was going to actually look if it would have ever came to to be. It just that kind of blows my mind. Yeah, and it's smaller than the the one we talked about last week for um, Palm Beach. Yeah, where they were looking at seventy thousand for that development. Yeah. So, but I think we're going to find this was much more complex than what MacArthur and Walt and RCA and NBC envisioned for the Palm Beach project. Oh, yeah, very true. So, Walt often came to the planning sessions with a paper napkin stuffed in his coat pocket. And on the napkin would be notes and diagrams he had made over breakfast at home. So after the meetings, Walt would crumple up the napkins and throw them away, and Marvin Davis would retrieve the napkins from the trash and keep them as reference. <laughs> so, uh. so, yeah, I, I like how just Walt just, you know, he, he just did things simply and oh. handed them over. Oh, my gosh, and those would be worth so much money today. <laughs> yeah, and one still, the, the, there's the one famous one we're going to talk about in just a moment okay. that basically was the plan for, and, and that that was followed today. And if you if you lay it side by side with the um, map of Epcot, well, well, of Walt Disney World before like MGM Studios and Animal Kingdom were yeah. built, you can sort of see how it was followed. That's so cool. And if you include celebration, yeah, as yeah. part of it. So in early October, Walt arrived at the Disney World planning meeting with another napkin, and on it was sketched an outline of the Florida property, and in Walt's handwriting, locations were marked as park, hotels, lake, camps and motels, tourist trailer camp, main entrance, airport and motels, industrial entrance, and the notation, truck route always under the monorail. This is how we'll do it, Walt announced to the WED planners. His sketch, which was called the seventh preliminary master plot plan, remained the basic pattern for developing the Florida project. And that's the one I was just talking about. Okay. So, so how did Walt progress from creating Mickey Mouse to creating the city of tomorrow? So in episode three, we talked about a deal Walt and Roy Disney tried to work out with insurance magnate James MacArthur to build a theme park surrounded by a city in Palm Beach, Florida. And after the deal fell through, Walt pushed on with his goal to build a city of tomorrow. Now, according to Buzz Price, Walt dropped most of his work at Disneyland with the exception of audio animatronics, and he became totally focused on building a city. And why a city? 
Well, when you think about it, everything Walt had accomplished in his career, from creating films to building Disneyland, was for families and the happiness of all people. So by the 1960s, Walt was growing increasingly concerned by what he saw as threats to families and people's happiness. The 1950s had seen the growth of the suburbs and the degeneration of the cities. Those who were unable to move out of the cities were often forced to live lives Walt considered to be beneath the dignity of human beings. Walt hated seeing people living in miserable conditions, which could contribute to the collapse of families and to the future detriment of children, and he believed there had to be a way to make cities a place where people and families could thrive and grow. And Walt believed he was the only person who could prove it, and because of this, Walt believed it was his responsibility to do so, to create a city that would demonstrate to others how they could solve their urban planning problems. Hmm. So, so pretty remarkable. For He could have just finished his career making films and adding on to Disneyland, and he still, we still would have considered him a genius. Yeah, but that would have... <sighs> I mean, in retrospect, looking back on it, it it would have been great, but it wouldn't have been enough almost. Uh, Walt Disney just kept progressing forward with everything. I mean, we can go back and have the discussion like we did in the first episode about how he had to keep pushing himself going through the silly symphonies and creating new techniques in each one to make it even better and better and better. I mean, he had to do the same thing with the actual life, too. He couldn't just keep doing the same monotonous, boring routine over and over again. The fact that it was this type of planning is bizarre, to say the least, but I mean, you can't you can't fault him for what he wanted to do and what he was interested in. Yeah, because what, like we talked about in the first episode, once he accomplished something and mastered it, he didn't go back. He felt it was done and, and he needed to move on. He needed yeah. to move forward. And so there really wasn't a lot more for him to do in sort of the fields where he was in. He was pushing the envelope yeah. of technology and filmmaking and animation, theme park design, and he, he needed another outlet. And this was a way I think he saw it as he was giving back to humanity because they had um, rewarded him so much so yeah yeah so now Walt said I don't believe that there's a challenge anywhere in the world that's more important to people everywhere than finding solutions to the problems of our cities Walt disliked what cities had become choked with urban sprawl and disorienting and inefficient designs now, on a 1948 train trip to the Chicago World Railroad Fair, um, Walt had told Ward Kimball, I can't figure out why in the hell everybody lives in the city where they don't have any room and can't do anything. Why don't they come out here where they have this great empty land filled with opportunity and silence? And because Walt believed his growing up in the country had given him a sense of independence, individualism, and democratic character. Mm -hmm. So, in 1960, science fiction um, author Ray Bradbury suggested to Walt that he should run for mayor of Los Angeles because he was the only man who knew how things work. (laughs) So, now, based on what Walt had created with Disneyland, Bradbury really believed Walt understood the issues. 
especially when it came to public transit. Bradbury said, I'm all for making Walt Disney our next mayor. The only man in the city who can get a working rapid transit system built without any more surveys and turn it into a real attraction so that people will want to ride it. Walt's reply was, why should I run for mayor when I am already king? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So, So again, in 1964, Bradbury suggested Walt was the only person who could save us from our own destruction. And he added, Walt Disney is a city builder. He has already proven his ability to construct an entire community, plus rivers, plus mountains from the gas lines up. He has already solved most of the problems that beset Los Angeles. And Disney Imagineer John Hench said, Disneyland was very courageous on Walt's part, and Florida shows the most guts of anything. To take a kind of civilization, make it ideal, and then to make it practical. Now, Walt Disney was both visionary and practical. He knew he could not do everything. Um, John Hench said that Walt did not want to change people's lives, only the environment in which they lived. And Marvin Davis suggested it was his philosophy not to build a city that would solve all the urban problems all over the world, but to give a chance to American industry to experiment and show to the world just how the problems of traffic and housing could be solved. And Buzz Price said, Walt wanted to try going beyond the park experience. He wanted to try improving the environment, the urban setting. He was full of ideas about what the place would be like. Epcot would not be just a park, but an urban experiment where you could try to improve the way people live, creating alternatives to our frantic automobile existence. Now, according to Marvin Davis, it would only be, it would be a place not only for testing physical things, but also educational developments and all forms of communication. Walt was greatly interested in solving the young adult problem that faced everybody. If we can successfully show to the world an area in which teenagers are properly controlled and given an opportunity to express themselves and are kept occupied, this is something we really want to work on. And in 1963, Walt said, Well, my greatest reward, I think, is that I've been able to build this wonderful organization. Walt intended the Florida Project to be long-term and that it would keep his Imagineers busy for decades. His advice to them was, Think beyond your lifetime if you want to accomplish something truly worthwhile. Now, Walt estimated it would take him 15 years to complete Disney World. He was so involved in the building of this city, he turned over most of his studio responsibilities to other team members. In speaking to his core leadership team, Walt said, You do a good job, and I have confidence in you, and I have to concentrate on Epcot. According to Marvin Davis, the amusement park was really a secondary thing. Walt was interested in solving the urban problem. It's a big scope, but that's exactly what he was thinking. When it came to the design of the East Coast Disneyland, the Magic Kingdom, Walt could not be bothered. 
During the planning meetings, Walt became impatient over talk about operation of the theme park. You guys know that by now, he snapped. I don't want to discuss what we learned about the past. I want to talk about the future. When his artists would show him concept drawings, he would get irritated, make a quick decision, and then get back to work on Epcot. Roy set up a committee to work on the Magic Kingdom, and Walt was not included in that group. See, and this has always upset me in a way almost any time I've heard this in the past, because, I mean, yeah, our Magic Kingdom does have something about it that is very special not special like disneyland and having walt actually walk through there but special nonetheless and if he would have been able to actually take the time to care a little more with it i I just only can imagine what would have been accomplished in our park but yeah i think and i think it would have been a very different magic kingdom i completely agree i think i mean yeah it's kind of it's turned into a concrete jungle over the years and very designed just to to really be able to accommodate larger crowds uh something that you know disneyland does accommodate the larger crowds but uh not as easily as we do but i just i feel like it would just have a different spirit a different soul to the park that Mm -hmm. is lacking right now and you know there's nothing to do but wish that it would have happened because it didn't (laughs) yeah but i also think you would have had different attractions and, uh, you know, he would have, I think he definitely, he would have improved upon yeah. Disneyland. So, yeah. and who knows, maybe once Epcot was really into development, he would have then turned his attention back and said, okay, what can we do different yeah. in the theme park? That's a good point, too. Yeah. So now, Walt began to read everything he could on the subject of urban planning and design. Um, he believes through proper planning and design, you could create a city unlike any other. Um, He read books like Ebenezer Howard's Garden City and every magazine article he could find on the subject. And one of the articles Walt read was in Horizon magazine titled Out of a City, Out of a Fair. And that was by architectural critic um, Ada Louise Huxtable. (laughs) And in the article, she described a proposal by Victor Gruen for Washington, D.C.'s bid for the 1964 World's Fair, which, as we know, was awarded to New York City. And Gruen is most famous for creating the world's first indoor shopping mall in 1956. And Gruen's proposal for a World's Fair based in Washington, D.C. intrigued Walt. It was Gruen's opinion that the biggest problem with the various World's Fair projects was the immense amounts of money spent on infrastructure for a fair that would be torn down after the fair was over. So Gruen proposed that Washington, D.C. build a permanent infrastructure that would be converted into a model city after the fair closed. So he designed a circular city surrounded by a giant parking lot. And the city would be elevated onto a platform, and all the utilities and services would be housed underneath, away from the public's eyes. So it sounds a little familiar. Yeah, just a little bit. (laughs) Walt saw this as his solution. He loved it. It's like Disneyland. It's circular. Walt liked the idea of putting all the services underground. Walt liked how this city would be organized with everything spreading out from a city center. 
and Walt also believed, after working with various corporations during the World's Fair, that it would take the participation of American industry to make Epcot into what he dreamed it could be. And Walt met with several large companies in 1966 to get their support for Epcot. Bob Gurr talked about a trip he took with Walt and several Disney executives in January 1966. And the group flew to Pittsburgh to meet with executives from Westinghouse, where Walt gave a presentation on Epcot and was then given a tour of the company's research and development labs. And Walt was given a demonstration of cutting-edge laser technologies and a project called Skybus, which was an automated transportation system. And Walt was interested in how both could be used at Epcot. And several days later, Walt and his group gave a similar presentation at General Electric. Now, uh, in terms of Westinghouse, did they ever get involved with the Disney company after this? You know, I don't have, I don't think so. I don't think they got involved. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously General Electric, we know that Mm -hmm. story, but (laughs) with Westinghouse, that kind of caught me off guard there. I, I yeah I don't th- I don't think they ever became a corporate sponsor now whether they were involved in any of the construction true I yeah. don't know yeah so now the presentations Walt gave to these companies included design schematics blueprints concept art and many other materials to entice American industry and later the public into joining him in his plan to build better cities and a better world. Now, Walt and his Imagineers knew exactly how Epcot and the entire Disney World project would be laid out and function. Now, the best document one can view to understand Walt's vision for Disney World is the Epcot film, which is readily available online. And Craig has very considerately put a link in our show notes to that film. And it's also available on the Tomorrowland Disney Treasures DVD, if you have that. Yep, so that means hit pause right now, go and watch it, and then come back, if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, because we're really going to lay this out for you. Yeah. So, we'll wait. Yeah, I mean, we have all the time in the world. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) Okay, welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in this film, as you just saw... Walt shares concept art, maps, models, and animation to demonstrate how the Florida property was to be designed and how it would function. And this film was created to be shown first to the Florida legislature and then to the Florida public. This film would be the last time Walt Disney would be seen on camera. He would pass away less than two months after it was filmed. Now, Walt gives a brief overview on the land the Disney company had purchased near Orlando. And then Walt moves on to the main point of the film. The sketches and plans you will see today are simply a starting point. Our first overall thinking about Disney World. Everything in this room may change time and time again as we move ahead. But the basic philosophy of what we're planning for Disney World is going to remain very much as it is right now. We know what our goals are. We know what we hope to accomplish. And believe me, it's the most exciting and challenging assignment we've ever tackled at Walt Disney Productions. Walt then begins to describe the layout of the property. 
Now, following Walt's timeline that Epcot would be ready for residents in 15 years and that groundbreaking would be in 1967, which it was on May 30th, Epcot would be open in 1982, which Epcot Center was on October 1st, 1982. So, Craig, would you like to join me back in 1982 for a visit to Walt Disney's City of Epcot? Absolutely. I'm ready. Okay. Well, just jump into my merry Oldsmobile here. Oh, fantastic. Great car. Yeah. We'll, we'll go back <laughs> in time. It has those, those push-button um, transmission. Do I have to roll up the windows myself? <laughs> yes, you do. I'm too lazy for that. <laughs> well, you get a better view if you hang your head out. Okay, good. <laughs> so... At the southern end of the intersection of Interstate Floor, Four and Florida's Turnpike, that's known as the Sunshine State Parkway when Walt designed Disney World, is the Entrance Complex and Registration Center. Now, at the northern end of Disney World is Phase 1 of the project, and this opened on October 1st, 1971, which includes the Magic Kingdom and its surrounding contemporary and Polynesian village resorts and the Wilderness Resort campgrounds, a trailer park and motor inns, along with the necessary infrastructure for further expansion. In between are the Industrial Park and the new city of Epcot. Mm-hmm. And that's why your castle is so large, because it had to draw people in from a long distance away. Yeah. Unlike the Disneyland castle, which was only meant to draw people in from the end of Main Street. So, so yeah. there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like Disneyland's castle better. Mm. So that's just me. I do too, but I'm prejudiced. so now connecting the entrance complex industrial park epcot and magic kingdom is the monorail running almost the full length of the property so visitors flying into orlando can land at disney world's jetport the airport of the future in osceola county which is now the site of the town of celebration Uh, the jetport is the world's first operational radial jetport Now, about this jet port, Marvin Davis said, the most interesting thing I thought was this airport, which we planned after the one in Cincinnati. We made a special trip to New York and met with this guy in charge of that airport who said it worked like a charm. This circular plan cuts down the area that you need by half instead of those long runways that you have now. So basically, the planes had to bank as they took off and landed. Oh, But it worked just fine. Okay. Now, since we are driving to Disney World, we can choose to park at the entrance complex and registration center or drive directly to our destination on the roadway system beneath the monorail beam. Now, Walt believed in providing guests with previews of upcoming attractions. So visitors to Disney World will find that the roadways and monorail are aligned to pass through the industrial park, Epcot, the Magic Kingdom, and other areas. So let's park at the entrance complex and registration center and rely on Disney World transportation as Walt intended. So we'll park in one of the 11,000 parking stalls on the 141-acre parking lot. Now the entrance complex is a sorting hub that helps guests determine which mode of travel will best get them to their destination. 
and some guests do have permission to continue along a limited-access highway to the huge parking structure underneath the Epcot Town Center, or the surface lots adjacent to the industrial park buildings. Trucks are restricted to a separate roadway system. Now, once the main highway gets to the Epcot Town Center, it dips below the towering building and divides into one-way couplets that eliminate left-turn delays and actually decreases travel time through the area. Hmm. Now, other guests will continue to drive directly to the camping area, the trailer park, one of the Magic Kingdom resorts, the golf course, or nearby campgrounds and motels near Bay Lake. And for more adventurous guests, there is also a wilderness camping area on one edge of the property. Other guests can drive to one of the motel pods, and each pod consists of four motels clustered around a common courtyard, and it's ringed by a road. However, one of the amenities of staying at one of the motels is that the motels are conveniently connected to the entrance complex by local bus service or by Wedway People Mover. As Walt had planned, guests can park their cars during their entire trip and rely on Disney transportation during their visit. At the center of Epcot is the transportation lobby, which is a multi-story terminal serving as the crossroads for the various Disney World transportation systems. Now, the lowest level of the transportation lobby terminal is reserved for supply vehicles, so the trucks have easy access to loading and to the service elevators for delivery of commercial goods. Uh, the middle level is reserved for automobiles, and it includes parking areas for the convenience of hotel guests. The top level of the transportation lobby is the home base for the monorail and the Wedway People Mover, and both are elevated above the walkways. Like the Plaza Hub at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, the transportation lobby is the one place where every pathway comes together so people can orient themselves and head off towards a new destination. Hmm. Now, the monorail is for rapid transit over longer distances, and the Wedway People Mover is for shorter travel distances, and both are electric-powered. Um, the monorail connects all major destinations. It starts at the airport, heads north towards the entrance complex, passes through the industrial park, and enters the transportation lobby below the mixed-use Cosmopolitan Resort Hotel, which is that towering building in the center. From there, the monorail trains travel along spur lines to the motel clusters and the low-density village areas scheduled to open in a later phase. Now, there are 20 Wedway People Mover lines radiating in and out from the transportation lobby. From all over the community, residents going to their jobs converge by People Mover on the city center. And from the transportation lobby to the low-density residential zones at the far edge, the Wedway People Mover is the transportation system for residents and visitors in Epcot. Now, the Epcot Wedway People Mover system features trains with four attached cars, with each car seating up to four. But these trains are much larger than the Disneyland and Magic Kingdom versions. The headway time, which is the waiting time until the next vehicle arrives, is three minutes. 
If a train is not ready at a station, a rider simply presses a button to signal for a train to come. If the demand decreases, surplus trains move back into the roundhouse. Now, during our 1982 visit to Epcot, the most visible building is the central structure with its skylight domes and hotel tower. So this is building on the success of Victor Gruen's indoor shopping center. Walt enclosed the entire 50 acres of city streets and buildings in the city center so he could protect his guests from the sometimes brutal Florida weather. This 50 acres is just a small section of the entire 1,100-acre Epcot. So let's go inside the dome. Now, rising from the center is a 30-story, 600-room Cosmopolitan Resort Hotel. And below the hotel is the transportation lobby. The hotel is surrounded by the town center. 43% or 21 acres of this space is dedicated to retail and hospitality areas. The Epcot Transportation Network and other public amenities um, account for 32%, or 16 acres of the area. The remaining 25%, or 12.5 acres, contain office space, a television studio, bank, service shops, warehouse space, community administration, fire station, post office, library, and a hospital. Hmm. Now, the town center entertainment district surrounds the base of the Cosmopolitan Resort Hotel, and it's organized like a daisy. And the petals radiating out from the hotel are sections representing different parts of the world. Separating these pedals are the elevated Wedway People Mover tracks, and riding the People Mover, guests can explore the districts by train and then decide which one to explore. When Buzz Price developed the feasibility study for Epcot, he indicated a covered town center would fail unless it became its own destination. Just being near the Magic Kingdom would not be enough. So to succeed, the Epcot Town Center had to have enough drawing power to generate an adequate return on its significant investment. So for that reason, the Epcot Town Center is an internationally themed shopping and dining area. So imagine the World Showcase pavilions under one roof. This district incorporates the best of Walt's ideas. Its themed restaurants and nightclubs are similar to those included in the Mineral King Ski Resort plans, and Disneyland-style attractions such as Circle Vision 360, large-format theaters, and an indoor theme park, similar to the St. Louis Waterfront Project plans we discussed in Episode 3. Now, Marvin Davis estimated that each country would occupy a long city block, which is approximately 1,500 feet inside of this dome. And the city is filled with street cafes under the climate-controlled roof, giving it a special charm. This, this would be revisited when the, when the plans for Westcott at Disneyland were mm -hmm. developed, which I'll talk about someday on the Disneyland show. Now, not only do tourists visit the restaurants and shops, there are thousands of permanent residents living in apartments within a few steps of the shopping districts. 
This is where we find Epcot's high-density apartments surrounding the Metropolitan Center and home to a large part of the residential population. So as part of the agreement for living in a demonstration city, the apartment homes are well-appointed and contain the latest in technology and gadgets. Epcot residents participate in focus groups and user panels to evaluate the viability of new technologies. And many of the residents work for the companies in the industrial park designing or manufacturing these devices. Now, because the apartments are located on the outer rim of the enclosed central area, residents are given a choice of views, either facing into the enclosed areas looking down onto the highly themed pedestrian boulevard or looking outside the enclosed area at the Greenbelt area, community service structures, low-density homes, and the surrounding natural areas. Residents of the apartments most likely do not own automobiles because there is no need for one. Due to the cost of parking spaces and the experimental nature of Epcot, most, most apartment residents are not allotted a place to park a vehicle in the large underground parking structure near the transportation lobby. Apartment residents are for the most part required to rely solely on public transportation or short-range electric vehicles for on-property trips and rental cars for longer journeys. It's just mind-blowing to think about all of this just taking place under one dome at this point in time. I mean, it would just be jam-packed full of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about the Epcot model in a little bit. That's a portion is still visible yep. to, for people to see. And you'll see that that got changed slightly from a dome to where it looks like it's a huge multi-storied building with domes serving as like skylights. Yes, yeah. On it. As I think when they started to price what a dome would be, it was cost prohibitive. I mean, but you will you will see concept sketches though um, of Epcot City with the giant dome though. Yeah. So, so now let's travel beyond the ring of high density apartments to Epcot's most significant community shared area, and that's the Green Belt. Now, this is more than just a broad expanse of lawns, walkways, and trees. Within the Green Belt are indoor and outdoor recreation facilities for every age. The park system features large parks, neighborhood parks, and supervised playgrounds. And there's a wide variety of experiences. The larger parks feature water displays and aquatic sports facilities. Some parks are completely naturalistic and can be used for picnics, group camping, uh, hiking, riding, and nature study. Other parks include recreational facilities such as tennis courts, golf courts, and baseball fields. There are also neighborhood parks in the low-density residential area, and each of these parks covers between 10 and 20 acres. There are also supervised playgrounds on school, park, and other public properties. Now, churches, schools, a teen center, a senior center, and other recreational zones are in the Green Belt. And with all of these amenities, the Green Belt is the community's gathering place. Now, knowing that some people would prefer to live in a single-family home and have access to their automobile, Walt designed Epcot with a low-density residential area. After all, Epcot was designed during the height of the suburban lifestyle. And in Epcot, 
the streets run behind the houses, and the houses are designed around cul-de-sac. And each home's front door is oriented towards the open space corridor away from the area where the automobile is parked. Um, the open space is shared between the residents, so there are no or very small private yards. Hmm. Now, unlike the typical mid-century suburb, Epcot provides multiple transportation options, so residents don't have to rely on their automobiles. Residents are encouraged to ride their bicycles or small electronic scooters or Others are testing electronic transportation devices. Probably the Segway would have been tested there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, to, to close the gap of the last mile between home and public transit. Now, in traditional suburbs, the streets are designed for automobiles. In Epcot, the streets are narrow to make sure the pedestrian feels in charge. And think of the Burbank Studios, the Walt Disney Studios, and how narrow those streets are. Yeah, yeah. That Walt designed them that way, and, and you can see Walt designed that whole studio, and you can see elements of that design in his plans for Epcot, where he made the pedestrian in charge at the studio. Yeah, and it's it's just a shame that something like this couldn't have actually been adapted into the whole Disney World environment that we know is today because now, I mean, yeah, Disney World is heavily still based off of public transportation and taking the bus system or the monorail, but I I mean, unless you're walking around a theme park, you are highly uh, held against being a pedestrian at all. I mean, you're not even allowed to walk on most of the the actual streets around Disney World on property. I know. When when I, when we stay in the boardwalk area, you know, near the, I think it's the Swan, you know, they have the uh, the miniature golf. Yeah. There, and I think, how do you get there? Because there's no sidewalk. No. Or anything to it. I realize you have to drive or take a cab or something like that. Oh, there is one crosswalk there where you can walk, where you go across the road. But I mean, uh, in the daytime, it's well lit and nice. But at night, you are literally taking your your life into your own hands by trying to cross the road to get over there. Well, at least I know that it's possible to walk over there. That's what's kept me really from... It's fun, but yeah, it's a dangerous hike. And even then, it's kind of like you said, there's not that immediate sidewalk to take you there you kind of have to walk around back through the parking lot all that and then you can get to the area where you get to the crosswalk and then go across it's i mean with the exception as you just said that whole boardwalk area you know that is all very pedestrian friendly going between hollywood studios and epcot but that's literally it on property with the exception then of the the walking distance between uh Grand Floridian and Polynesian and then kind of, you know, Saratoga Springs with downtown Disney. It's just, mm-hmm. it's not pedestrian friendly at all. And no. it's a shame. Yeah, it is. It is too bad. And yeah, it's too bad. They could never afford to extend monorail, extend the people mover, things yeah. like that. That would, planned. that would make a difference in everything. Yeah. yeah. Now, now most sprawling suburbs discourage the use of public transit but Epcot encourages it. Uh, there are pathways leading to the people mover stations where there are storage spaces for those last mile vehicles we were talking about. Yeah. 
Now, the Wedway People Mover has stops throughout the low-density residential areas at the Greenbelt, the High-Density Residential Zone, the Shopping and Entertainment District, and the Transportation Lobby. So Epcot has been designed so that each home is within easy walking distance to the transit stations. And Epcot residents only need an automobile for trips off property. Now surrounding Epcot's low density residential housing is a rural zone, which is land in an open or cultivated state. And much of the land is dedicated to the complex drainage system that is part of this zone. For future planning, there's also land set aside for later phases in the project, including a very low-density residential subdivision and a secondary town center. After his experience with Disneyland in Anaheim, Walt knew he wanted to protect Disney World from adjacent development. At Disneyland, he built a berm to hide the park. At Disney World, Walt shielded his city from the outside world by placing all of the development in between two very large swamps. Now, the thousand-acre industrial park is connected to Epcot by the monorail. This is intended to be a showcase for American industry and ingenuity, and Walt wanted to work with individual companies to create a showcase of industry at work. But what would those companies get in return? Well, six million people who visit Disney World each year will look behind the scenes at experimental prototype plants, research and development laboratories, and computer centers for major corporations. Corporations would also receive an incalculable amount of goodwill and the ability to test market products. The industrial park is located between the entrance complex and the Epcot transportation lobby. So Walt strategically placed it in between these two destinations because it would give corporations positive exposure from the millions of visitors each year who passed by on the monorail. Hmm. And like other areas of Disney World, the industrial park is set in a symmetrical radial circulation pattern. So upon arrival... Passengers will disembark from the monorail and board Wedway people mover cars that radiate through each facility. So each people mover transit line leads to one of the 160 acre industrial park clusters. And the transit station is built on two levels. The upper level is the people mover station with a rotating platform like the one at the Magic Kingdom today. And from here, workers and guests access the corporate buildings from either the upper-level pedestrian bridge or they go below to the public plaza. And each industrial park cluster is made up of five or six large two-story industrial buildings facing an elevated people-mover station. And each building is pie-shaped with the narrow end facing the station. And the buildings range in size from 50,000 to 200,000 square feet. And the loading docks are located on the long side of the wedges. And workers who arrive by car uh, will park behind the buildings. Now the front entrance of each office building faces a public plaza surrounding the base of the transit station. Dining and shopping and other services are located underneath the station. And each cluster has a conference center, and the warehouses are automated. 
Smokestacks and any noises, odors, and emissions that might offend workers are prohibited. And all the buildings share the same climate control system with a central refrigeration plant. Now, in the various master plans for Disney World, the Imagineers show a satellite community that would have been built at the northeast edge of the property. And this area would have been a very low-density residential municipality with a central commercial center at the hub and residential roadways spreading out like spokes. And in between these residential areas is open space and lakes. Uh, nearby, a golf course was proposed for this area with another on the other side of an extended Bay Lake south of the theme park district. The size of Bay Lake was proposed to double. So imagine today's Bay Lake combined with the Seven Seas Lagoon, and it would still be smaller than the proposed Bay Lake. And a monorail spur line would connect this neighborhood to the rest of Disney World. Okay, that would have been absolutely massive. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. So, so, so what do you think of, of your tour of Epcot City, Craig? I, I, I mean, 1982, this... This all sounds impressive the same way it does, uh, let's say, we came back to 2015 here. It, it still sounds impressive, but I don't, uh, going into the details more and more, and, you know, I'm not looking at a map or anything right now. I've seen the maps that have been laid out before, and I've, I've read about the plans, but going into this is a fresh thought, uh, which is how the world would have seen it if it all would have came to be. I... <laughs> It's also, it's also such an utopian look at everything. It's almost too ideal. I, I don't see how that could have ever actually worked. It's it's mind blowing. I think that's what uh, some of the uh, the criticisms are of it is that it was very idealistic, and that if Walt had lived the ten to fifteen years, there he might not have been able to make all of this happen. Because yeah. just realistically, financially, uh, there would be challenges that even he couldn't overcome. But everybody that worked with him at the time are, are absolutely positive, though, there would have been an Epcot City. Yeah, and I, I believe that, too. And, I mean, part of what we do love about Walt Disney is his idealism. But at the same time, too, knowing that he couldn't live forever having if everything didn't go the way he planned it to and it didn't work out would he have seen that as a failure would that have been the last big thing that he was ever known for was a failure that would that would almost be sad in a way yeah although i don't know knowing walt could he have let it fail that's a good point too would would he would he have found a way you know and would those who worked with him have found a way I wish we would have known. I wish we yeah. would know. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I know that, um, you know, Michael Eisner likes to say that celebration was the attempt to to fulfill Walt, Walt's dream. I mean, he really saw himself as the person that fulfilled Walt's dream. But when you talk to Marty Scalar and all that, he said it was not that. No. Celebration was not even close to fulfilling Walt's dream, it was never even considered that when it was planned. Yeah, the only thing you can really say about Celebration is that it is very pedestrian-friendly right in the actual city center, and 
other than that, I mean, it's just an expensive place for people to live in, <laughs> right outside of Disney property. That's that's about it. Yeah. yeah. Now let's take a look at what life was like for the twenty thousand residents or so who live and work in Epcot. Now, for Walt and the Disney Company to have complete control over Epcot, residents agreed to give up some of their local voting rights since they are not able to own their homes or land. Okay, yeah. Now, about Epcot, Walt said, It will be a plan-controlled community, a showcase for American industry and research, schools, cultural and educational opportunities. There will be no slums because we won't let them develop. There'll be no landowners and therefore no voting control. People will rent houses instead of buying them and at modest rentals. There will be no retirees because everyone must be employed according to their ability. One of our requirements is that people who live in Epcot must keep it alive. Everyone who lives here will have a responsibility to help keep this community an exciting living blueprint of the future. So I wonder why is there a senior center in in the green belt if there are no retirees? <laughs> I mean, you know, they they still need a place to hang out, even though they're working twelve hours a day doing <laughs> who knows what, maybe working, working in one house. Exactly. One of the restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> so now attorney Paul Hellowell sent Walt a memo outlining some of his concerns about permanent residents. He wrote that a permanent population would begin to demand a chance to participate in their local government. In his reply to the memo, Walt crossed out the line referring to permanent residents and changed it to temporary residents slash tourists. Walt decided early on that the solution was there would be no permanent population in Epcot. He suggested nobody would be able to live there longer than approximately nine months. And that seems like such a short time to try to, you know, uproot your life first to become a, a resident of Epcot and then have to get the boot nine months later. I at know. That. And, how, and how do you build a sense of community? You, you don't. And, and that's what a lot of Epcot to survive the way Walt Disney wanted it to, where everyone is a part of the community and everyone works together to keep it alive whenever people are just coming and going and you never get that sense it's just impossible yeah they can't stay forever and then you start to get that seniority idealism where you know i have been here for 20 years now so i'm better than you you can't have that but uh, i mean maybe he did some tests that said nine months is as long as they would need before they need to move on who knows yeah and also nine months is about the length of a school year. Yeah, true. So if it's for families, you know. Yeah, that's good point. It would be. Yeah. So. yeah. Now, living in Epcot would be like being a crew member on a ship, Walt said. Epcot will be a working community with employment for all. All residents would be working at Epcot, the theme park, or any other facilities, which could include Disney cast members or representatives from participating companies. So, do you think people would have enjoyed living in Epcot after um, hearing all this? I have no idea. I mean, 
I mean, in my mindset, yeah, thinking about Epcot, yeah, that's that's a place that I would want to live just to see how it works, see how it functions. I wouldn't want it just be a visitor like i would love to live in any big city for any amount of time just to have that experience because it's something i've never had before but i just i can't see how this would actually work i can't see how people would be so happy if they're basically on a short-term lease living there and, and including like cast members at the theme park people who are working at the parks obviously i feel like it would extend a uh, a longer you the like the Imagineers and stuff who were living in Epcot working at the theme park still keeping everything going they would probably be extended longer leases on being a part of Epcot but for some of the cast members out there who just really want to be a part of it and couldn't because of what you have to sacrifice or give up just to be a part of it it's also there's so many questions to even ask beyond just how would you enjoy living in it? Because there's nothing else like it to really even compare it to. Yeah. I, I just feel that, you know, part of what he wanted was to build a community and people just aren't going to have that commitment if it's only for nine months. I mean, some will, but um, I don't know. I just think that's something that it would have been interesting to see if as time went on, if that changed. Yeah, I mean, and obviously it would have to naturally change a little bit, but uh, then we go back into thinking, if Walt Disney was around for longer, what would have happened with it? I mean, you've already mentioned that he designed the studio. He he made that studio was his first little city that he designed and came up with, and it was that it was that brief utopia for him until things fell apart, and then obviously we know about the strike and how some of the attitudes were affected in terms of the studio with there. It, maybe he would have wanted to exercise way too much control whenever it came to the people living in Epcot, and that would ultimately cause revolt and cause it to not work. Yeah. yeah. Now, Ward Kimball, who's a uh, you know, Disney legend and an artist and a train lover like Walt, he didn't believe that Epcot could have worked. Um, he suggested that you can't experiment with people's lives. And I think Walt at some point must have understood that as well, because during an interview, um, Walt remarked that Epcot would be only one of two prototype cities, and the other which is forming in his mind would be an experimental laboratory for administering cities, and retired persons and others could buy property in the second city. And Walt said, I happen to be an inquisitive guy, and when I see things I don't like, I start thinking, why do they have to be like this, and how can I improve them? City governments, for example. We pay a lot of taxes and still have streets that aren't paved or are full of holes. And city street cleaners and garbage collectors who don't do their jobs. And property owners who let dirt accumulate and help create slums. Why? So the reporter commented that Walt seemed to have enough to do without taking on experimental cities. Yeah. And Walt said with a laugh, oh, you sound just like my wife. When I started on Disneyland, she used to say, but why do you want to build an amusement park? They're so dirty. I told her that was just the point. Mine wouldn't be. 
Now, more than anything else, Walt's plans for Epcot demonstrated his faith in the basic goodness of humanity. He believed if you gave people a good place to live and the proper information and choices to make it better, they would do so. Now, a comment Walt once made about Disneyland applies to his plans for Epcot. You don't build it for yourself. You know what the people want and you build it for them. So maybe as Walt learned what people wanted, if he had lived those 15 years, he would have made adjustments into, um, you know, sort of the, the rules of living at Epcot. Yeah, there is there is that potential. But at the same time, too, uh, in terms of technological innovation, sometimes people don't know what they want until they actually have it. And they can mm-hmm. see it and mess around with it. And when someone like Walt Disney, who could really push the the boundaries on it, then, I mean, you needed him around to let people know what they want instead of letting them decide what they want as of right now. I mean, otherwise, we wouldn't even... I mean, if he wouldn't have decided that he needed to do the things he did at Disneyland, then people today wouldn't know that they wanted that. They would have just been okay with the theme parks that we're used to everywhere else yeah so. yeah you're right yeah. now bob Gurr um said i think he was quite naive from the standpoint of naive about the negative parts of life um, bob Gurr believes if walt had lived if epcot had launched smoothly smoothly the practical and pragmatics would have crushed him he always saw the good parts of life as being so interesting, and how could you make it even better? So now, along with producing the Epcot film, um, Walt tasked his team with building a model, primarily designed by Marvin Davis, based on concept art by Herb Ryman, to promote Epcot the city to the Florida legislature. And Ryman's artwork, as well as the unfinished centerpiece of the Cosmopolitan Resort Hotel, were featured in the Epcot film. Now, after Walt's death in 1966, the decision was made to complete the model. After a highly successful two-year run at the New York World's Fair, General Electric committed to continuing sponsorship of Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress at Disneyland. At the fair, GE operated a post-show attraction where their products were presented in a mock city environment called Progress City. When the carousel opened at Disneyland in 1967, it was still too early to promote the Epcot City Walt had envisioned, so the decision was made to display the completed model to guests exiting the attraction and to rename it Progress City. Now, following the opening of Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom in 1971, General Electric wanted to reinvigorate the Carousel of Progress and attract a new East Coast audience by moving the carousel to Florida. So the Epcot model was moved to storage until it could be transported to Florida. However, General Electric decided to forego a post-show area at the Magic Kingdom. So John Hench designed the current one-story building in the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. As a result, the model became expendable. However, there was some show space that needed filling along the Wedway People Mover track. So it was decided to use the model for that purpose. The model had been cut into pieces for its cross-country journey, 
but since the entire model would not fit into the new space, most of it was discarded. Hmm. Such Which a shame. Really sad. I know yeah. it is a shame. So, and I I remember that original model when it was at Disneyland, and everything worked. Uh, the lights, you know, went on and off, yeah. and you could see people in the windows. The monorails and the people movers all worked. I mean, it was great. Um, there's got to be some video of it somewhere out there that someone knows about. Uh, there has to be. I'm yeah. sure someone took some. So, now, since 1975, the remaining 1,428-square-foot portion of the model, including most of the elevated town center section, about half of the green belt, and roughly one cropped residential area has been on display along the Tomorrowland Transit Authority, or Woodway People Mover, ride path. And when the People Mover enters the show building for Stitch's Great Escape, the model of what is left of Walt's original vision is visible on the left, if you're facing forward, um, behind glass. But unfortunately, the People Mover goes so quickly, it's really hard to take in a lot of the details yeah it is it's one of those things where you need to actually uh go on a slow day where they don't even make you get off so you can ride it two or three times in a row and really get a good glimpse of this because honestly you know i love the people mover i love i i love some of the things that you experience among the ride uh like going through space mountain but still the the greatest part of it is going past the epcot model yes yeah, definitely. And most people probably don't even know what it signifies. I completely agree. At this point, yeah. But um, anyway, but at least something of it exists. Yes, that's that's and, a good point. And I think they recently um, restored that section of the model. Because I remember when I was there a few years ago, you know, it's like the people movers were falling off the tracks and it was dusty and there were cobwebs. And I believe they... Um, they sort of put it back together again and spruced it up and stuff. Yeah, it's it's looked good every time I've gone on it. And I mean, I go on it so often, though, that it's it all blends into each other. So. So now at the conclusion of his Epcot film, Walt appears once again to make this closing statement. And now where do we go from these preliminary plans and sketches? Well, a project like this is so vast in scope that no one company alone can make it a reality. But if we can bring together the technical know-how of American industry and the creative imagination of the Disney organization, I'm confident we can create right here in Disney World a showcase to the world of the American free enterprise system. I believe we can build a community that more people will talk about and come to look at than any other area in the world. And with your cooperation, I'm sure this experimental prototype community of tomorrow can influence the future of city living for generations to come. It's an exciting challenge, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. Speaking for myself and the entire Disney organization, we're ready to go right now. The enthusiasm and positive spirit Walt has for Epcot permeates this film. You know, watching it leaves you feeling sad over the loss of Walt and the loss of Epcot City. 
Um, Walt passed away before his work was finished, which was a fear he had his entire life. Yeah, it is. It's uh, watching it every time. It's it's tough. Yeah, and it was and it was put on. It was uh, broadcast on television about two months after he passed away. Yeah, that's morbid. Yeah. And next time in episode five, the torch is passed on. Craig and I will discuss the effect Walt's passing had on the Florida project and how it progressed with his brother Roy O. Disney taking the project on as his crusade. Now, many books, films, articles, and lectures were sourced for this episode of Connecting with Walt, including Project Future, the inside story behind the creation of Disney World by Chad Denver Emerson, Walt and the Promise of Progress City by Sam Genoway, Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, Walt Disney and Technology by Christian Moran, Walt Disney and American Original by Bob Thomas, The Man Behind the Magic, The Story of Walt Disney by Catherine and Richard Green. And remember, you'll be able to uh, find links to all of these in the show notes uh, straight to Amazon for either new or previously used uh, editions of all these books. So that way, if you want to start reading yourself, getting invested in all of it definitely start building your library yes and someday you might have a podcast of your own (laughs) exactly i mean someone's got to do it whenever we're not doing it anymore that's right when we pass on the torch yes (laughs) so craig until our next episode where can our listeners find you Uh, as always at home but i still (laughs) will not reveal that information so uh, just continue to find me on social media, on Facebook, and on Twitter. I am Teleclaster, as well as on Instagram. And like I always say, please go follow the Diz on Instagram, the dot Diz. And that's where I do most of my fun in-park posting and uh, not all the personal stuff I do online. But, yep, that's where I'm at. What about you? Well, you can find me every Sunday night on the Diz Unplugged podcast the Disneyland podcast with my good friends Tom Bell, Nancy Johnson, Mary Jo Mulata-Willie, and Tony Spatel, where we have lots of fun talking about Walt's Park that started it all. We also talk about more than Walt's Park, like the Disney World show does. We talk about all the other theme parks in the area. We have Knott's Berry Farm. We have Universal Studios, where we are getting our own Wizarding World of Harry Potter yep. um, in 2016. We have... Uh, we have in San Diego, we have SeaWorld. We have Magic Mountain, um, not far from, um, really not far from Cal Arts and the Golden Oak Studio. Yeah. And Golden Oak Ranch. And we talk about, also, we talk about other places you can go to. If you're interested in seeing the glitz and glamour of Hollywood, we talk about where you can go to see that. If you're a beach person, we talk about the best places to enjoy the beach and where not to enjoy the beach. We talk about places to eat in and around Southern California. Um, We even talk about trips to Yosemite and Sequoia National Park. So we really talk about pretty much anything you want to know about California, not just Disneyland. Oh yeah. Of course I talk about the Walt Disney family museum in San Francisco. 
So listen to us live on Mixler, Sundays at 8 p.m. Pacific Time, Disneyland Time. You can download our three weekly shows each Monday and Tuesday. And if you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his Imagineers in Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history segments. And... Craig, where can our listeners find these shows and more? Yep, disunplug.com. Uh, that's where you'll find everything for Disney World, Disneyland, this show, and then uh, the Universal Edition and the trip. We're all on there, and uh, the uh, the archives are very challenging and hard to get through at points in time, but... Uh, Hopefully we can make that a little easier for everyone in the future. But if you haven't got lost in the archives yet and just randomly discover episodes that you might not have thought ever existed, uh, do yourself a favor and do that if you have free time and you really want to learn some new stuff. Because, well, there's there's lots of hidden information in there that even we forgot that we've done. (laughs) <laughs> that's true yes <laughs> so now you can also send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com uh, on twitter i'm at mbowling121 on facebook michael bowling and instagram michael bowling the Diz. so thank you for making us a part of your day and remember i only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that it was all started by a man walt disney mm-hmm.